was 1969 and the Ardoin Kickhams from Belfast won the Under-16 Football Championship in South Antrim. That team is regarded as one of the best Under-16 sides that Ardoin has ever produced. Pat Murphy was the team's goalkeeper in the 69 final. What follows is his story of the players and their families in the 20 troublesome years since. It's a story based on a faded squad photograph of the 24 boys who won the championship in August 1969. It was the 23rd of August 1969, smashing day, sun was splitting the stones. Um, we played St Gauls at the first part of our double we were going for, a championship in league, it was the championship final. We won it 9-4, played very, very well and we eventually lost out in the double, we were beaten in a playoff for the league. Uh, but it was the best underage squad that the club had seen in a long time and there was very, very big things expected of it You know, at that stage of the game. You know. It was the first team photograph I remember been in or been part of the team, you know, having the photograph taken. Uh, it was great gas immediately before the final, very professional, lined up and got the photograph taken and then played the final. Uh, it was a Saturday, exactly seven days after the Brits had come in and the club had got a minibus from somewhere and it drove us from Ardoin over to Casement Park where the match was and through the falls, and it, which was still practically smouldering, mills and barricades and burnt out buses and motor cars. Uh, and it never really fizzed on us. The most important thing that day was to play the match and win, do well. And uh, it was a, a period of time before it really dawned on, on us as kids that, that it was a serious thing. You know, the ratting was a bit of crack and the, the beast bicycles, the paddle bomb. And then it suddenly began to dawn on you sort of that there was actually people had been killed and, and that people were made homeless. And it, was, it wasn't a game or it wasn't good fun. It was, it was deadly serious. Um, then you got the, the, the trickle of the lads started to, uh, towards emigrating away from the place. Um, Tommy Ferguson and a couple of them went initially, and then uh, in particular friends of mine, um, Davy and Danny Watson, went. Uh, they were actually in the team photo that day on the team. Davy was captain of the team, and Davy was a was a particular friend of mine. We played minor county vocational schools football together and, and knocked about for an awful long time together. I remember him, him leaving well. Uh, I, I never actually got the boat that night, though a lot of the boys went down along with his family. I rang him, I was chasing a young girl up the falls road at the time and didn't make it down to the boat. But uh, I remember Davy leaving well, you know, it was, it was terrible. You know, the thought that old, your old buddy Davy Watson, well he wasn't that old, he was only 18 at the time, but your old buddy Davy Watson was going halfway around the world and you probably wouldn't see him again. Davy Wasson's departure from Belfast was sponsored by a group known as the British Boys Movement. Davy had played midfield for the team and he emigrated to Australia from Belfast Harbour. Well, my father came down with uh, some of my brothers and sisters. My mother, unfortunately, wasn't able to make it. She just felt that she couldn't say cheerio at the boat. She just said it in the house. I think it just was too much for her. I thought that our family was fine. I mean, I was the first of the family to go should have been married or out or anywhere and I think it just was too much for her. And what was it like as a, as a teenager arriving uh, suddenly in Australia? It's a long way away. It was daunting uh, suddenly realising that you're in, that, in the place where you had always wanted to go to but you were soon brought back to reality when you went to the hostel and it was run in a regimented fashion and you soon thought to yourself, you thought maybe you joined the army instead. What sort of jobs did you end up getting? 
The first job that I got was as a ticket clerk in the railway system out there. They use it the same as in England to have the underground system. So it is um, quite, quite busy and uh, it is a very demanding job. Were you making a break of it as a, a ticket clerk? I thought I was doing well until one morning as I was selling the tickets someone came up and asked for a return to Burwood and I told him the price I said, idiot and they just stood back in amazement and they didn't say anything and the two of us were both looking at each other and there was a gentleman behind me who was watching my progress because I was only a trainee who then pulled me to one side and he said what did you say to that person? and I says, idiot <laughs> he said, oh he says the think you've called him an idiot. <laughs> you meant, of course, 88p. I meant, of course, 88 cents. Oh, 88 cents. <laughs> so uh, I decided, well, I seem to be having a little bit of trouble with the language difficulties here, so maybe I'll try something else. What other jobs did you move along to when you were out there? Um, I moved into labouring. Um, done it mostly in the winter. Sorry, in the winter when it just wasn't quite as warm. During the summer, I used to get jobs... Um, in clerical capacity. You lasted how long? Two and a half years. But uh, about a quarter of that team of 1969 are still away, and some indeed in Australia. They just haven't come back. Yes, um, there are quite a few who have gone and haven't returned. Um, I think that a lot of them felt that, uh, OK, the coverage maybe had a, not a different effect on me. I felt that I wanted to be there, but a lot of them felt it possibly well where I am, I'm safer, I've got a better life and I think I'll just stay. And never came back. And they never came back. I think that over the next four or five years you, you lost a lot of players. You had good players, Liam, Liam Carr, Ma, Big Mossy, um, Roy Carrigan, Martin Malm. Uh, a lot, lot of them all away and not living in the, in the district, district or country anymore. Uh, at the same time you also had the, the, the harassment by by the security forces in the nationalist area, there, there initially had been a delay where, and then the Brits discovered there was a difference between soccer and Gaelic football, and that we were in fact going to play a nationalist game or a national Irish game. Uh, the club had acquired its own minibus by this stage, and once it became known to, to, to the soldiers that were in the area, it was always a start to be stopped, and you were taken out, and names taken, frisked, and just just sort of general harassment. And while the immigration went ahead, the sectarian assassination campaign was going on apace and there was a lot of a lot of members bereaved and well Raymond Mooney for example who was the uh, the right back on that team of 69 was assassinated um, Raymond and, and his brother Gabriel knocked about the club together and you know you remember them from matches and playing hurling and football and going away on, on holiday outings and well if Raymond's not there anymore Raymond's dead and well Gabriel still is and he's bearing the memories of, of the assassination and all it meant to his family Raymond Mooney, the right back for Ardoyne, was murdered in the grounds of the Holy Cross Chapel on the Crumlin Road after attending a religious meeting. His brother Gabriel remembers. Well, apparently um, he had been at the Living Church meeting. He actually chaired a Living Church meeting. And he had been um, starting off a new season, as I would call it. And he was um, putting the whole aspect of the Living Church to two new priests. One of them was the new rector, had just arrived a couple of days and um, they were leaving then after the meeting everybody else had gone except for him 
and the lady was with him and another boy who was still in the hall and from what I can gather from what I've been told and reports I've heard that when they came out they go into a sort of a yard and then go into an, an outer door and they locked the doors after them and um, they were coming out onto the back when these three boys jumped out at them and one of them had a gun and I don't think the other two were armed at all and um, they run them from one end of the grounds to the far end of the grounds and in the process they were asking questions like uh, was there anybody in the hall and Raymond said no there was nobody else in the hall they were saying um, do you know why we're doing this we're the Protestant Action Force we've just lost a good friend um, do you know why we're doing this and apparently according to the lady who was with him at one stage the two boys who hadn't hadn't been armed were saying that they were sorry that this had to be done they were sorry it had to be done um, then they proceeded to kneel them both down and ask Raymond for identification and then they just took the lady away to not too far away suppose about 20 feet and tied her up and then apparently they shot him uh, four or five times whatever it was there was no real reason why it should have been Raymond he wasn't involved in anything was he the only thing he was involved with was the church which is I mean if he hadn't been where he was as I keep saying if he hadn't been a, a, as good a Christian as he was he wouldn't have been there it wouldn't have been him but then anybody in the grounds that night who would have been there for their faith whether it be Protestant Catholic they were there because of their faith Anybody would have been killed because of their faith, whoever it was in the ground that night. It just happens that it was Raymond. It must have had uh, terrible effects as well on his wife and children. Yeah, very bad effect on his wife and his children. His children, like, even to this day, only coming round to the fact that, you know, their, their daddy's not coming back. Going to the graveyard, like, with the children that I took breach up the first Sunday that he was, after he was buried in. She took it very bad. Still does. We all do, even when I go up by. But his children are coming out with things like, um, it's about the time my daddy was up and got homerous. And like the young fella, he went and got a piece of metal somewhere in the graveyard and decided he was going to dig his daddy up. And the wee girl says, well, I'm going to climb up to heaven and bring him home. Um... Oh God, heartbreaking things like that. Some of the things that come off us was unbelievable. Yeah. And the effects on your family uh, must have been terrible as well. Well, the mother and the brother and father, like, the mother will never be the same. Brother and father, I mean, they've been through it before in a way, like, but... Um, in what sense? What do you mean? This is with the older brother. He's ten years missing this year. I've just been on the heard of him. So, I mean, it was just like all that... I remember that night, just even done... I feel I'd done the same things, I cried the same way, I thought the same things then. Only we know where Raymond is now, we, know where, we don't know where Patrick is. Um, I don't know if... I know I'll never get over it. I don't want to ever get over it. I don't want to ever let it go, the fact that he's he's dead. What sort of feeling do you have a, a, about um, the whole event now? Bitterness, I don't know. At the time I said it, I didn't feel bitter. I feel bitter up to a stage that 
we can't get peace in this country. That nobody will talk to each other. That the politicians won't talk to each other. Um, I don't feel better really about the people who did it because they have to live for it. I, I, I feel the man who pulled the trigger will live for it. And I tell you, he has got some living to do. I believe in my heart that the two men that was with him who said they were sorry, up to the extent don't mean they were sorry, but they do as well. And I've got a feeling them men are going to break down. Because the way I feel it, them two men are going to break down. And the fellow who shot him, God will take his own revenge on the man who shot him. And we have, my family, my close family here, have prayed for him. And prayed for the other two. And have prayed to Raymond, in a way, to help us to control ourselves to help me to control myself by the way I feel about people in this country in the north of Ireland I just don't relate to anybody in the north of Ireland at the minute I think assassinations like that hit people particularly hard uh, if you take our down as a, a very close-knit district as it is you would know the majority of people in it uh, to see and then you take within that larger frame, framework of the district um, the club which is a very tight nucleus and you would either know people in it from you were eight or nine and joined the club or you would see people joining after you at, at the age of eight or nine and see them growing up you know for example in, in the, the 69 there was Michael and Frank McCallum who were about the third or fourth generation of the McCallum family to play for Ardoin GAC and their younger brother Callum who, who came after them and, and did went through the same process played up through the age groups under 12, under 14 on up Callum was assassinated in, in, in his early 20s and uh, the pain you know of knowing someone like that and having seen them grow, almost grow up along with them uh, see them killed wastefully like that uh, is, is very painful and and to see friends of yours like Michael McCallum suffering because of that event is, is very bad The UVF claimed responsibility for the death of Colum McCallum. He was a technical student, just married, and he was shot at Ligonil, where he lived. His brother Michael was a forward on the team of 69. Colum had, had been at home. He, uh, he had a number of drawings to finish off for a course he was doing at college. And he had left the house to come out and have a smoke or take a breath of air or something, get away from the drawings. He was only wearing a light T-shirt and a pair of gutties and... He seems to just to, to have walked the end of these fellas. Uh, they certainly they chased him. One witness stated that one of the men had tried to catch hold of Colm and Colm had hit him. Uh, as he ran away, there were shots fired after him and one of them hit him and he fell. The three men then ran towards Colm and shot him again. At one stage, their gun had jammed and they'd cleared the gun and shot him again in the head then that was it they'd left him for dead and took themselves off he didn't die immediately did he? no he didn't um, a lady who lived nearby had heard the shots and she testified later that up to three quarters of an hour later she had heard Colm groaning and she unfortunately was too terrified to come out of the house herself but it became apparent you know, from at the inquest that Colm had crawled 
probably the best part of 100 yards on his arms, falling the shit, and he, he wasn't able to get up. And one fellow and his girlfriend who had came across these men earlier themselves, they had they had come across Colm again, and at first they were reluctant to go near the Colm in case it was they were going to be led into something themselves. And the girl started to receive an act of contrition in Colm's ear. At that stage, Colm told her, look, stop and not that bad, and had tried to get up again. Do we know why Colm was picked as a, a target? Um, I, I don't think he, that Colm was actually selected in that kind of a, a sense. Um, I think Colm was what's termed here a random victim. These people had been in Leganil Estate for some period before Colm got shot, and had chased and, and tried to get hold of a couple of other people earlier. One man was walking a couple of greyhounds and he had come upon them and they chased him. A young fellow and his girlfriend had walked into them earlier on and managed to get away from them. So, I mean, in Colm's situation, I think he he just happened to be the unlucky one who fell into them. He lived uh, for a couple of days, didn't he? That's right, he lived a couple of days after... Uh, he was taken to the intensive care unit in the Royal Victoria and he was placed in a life support machine and it was a couple of days later that you know they pronounced him dead uh, certainly you know when I saw him that morning after being shot I didn't hold out any hope at all for him to, to have lived and uh, I'd actually went up to Leganil and had a look where he had been shot and Quite literally, they, they had blown the brains at him, and you know I, I don't think myself nor any of the rest of the family had any great hope that he was going to come th- or great belief that he was going to come through. He died on the fourteenth of July. Yeah, that's that's right. He died in the afternoon the fourteenth. As time went by, you became, or you even imagined you became, sort of hardened to the troubles. There was a, a familiarity about them that that maybe bred contempt to an extent. The first thing that struck me was that initially when a gun battle occurred or there was shots fired in the area that the women uh, standing at their doors or the kids playing the street would have run into the house out of the road of the gunfire. And after four or five months there was this curiosity about it. And when a, when a gun battle or gunshots occurred the people would have run out of the houses to see what had actually happened and where, where the, the incident had taken place. Uh, and you had the whole sort of blasé thing about it, you know, uh, you had teams travelling in from the country to play in the town and you've been playing in a park adjacent to, say, the likes of the White Rock or, or uh, Lena down at Ballamurphy, somewhere like that, and a gun battle that maybe broke out where you were in the process of playing somebody from a hackle out the country. And the lads used to have this great wind-up where they would have shouted over to each other, letting on the new, well, what type of guns were being fired. You know, that's an arm light. No, that's an SLR, you know. And this used to take the country men to the cleaners. Another one I remember, a fellow who played in the senior team was Tommy McCauley, who had got off the bus coming from work and had been shot in the back by a, a loyalist assassination squad. And, and we turned out about three weeks after that, uh, playing a country team. And Tommy was one of the, the top players on, on our senior team at that time. And there was a the question, where's Tommy? Oh, he was shot down the other week, you know that, but he's okay, he's not dead, you know, and it was just sort of, you could see the difference between the country people and, and, and their attitude to it, and, and our attitude to it, you know, which was harder, and then uh, it, it hit Tom Kieran, who was on that uh, that team with us, uh, he was assassinated, shot dead when he was 17 years of age, and he was my brother, and it really brings it home to you then. Mm-hmm. 
Kieran Murphy was a reserve on that 69 side. He was a trainee engineer and on October the 13th, 1974, he was abducted by paramilitaries on the Cliftonville Road. Well, the Chinese we just passed is the one he went to that night with his friends and he decided to walk on up this road here uh, on his own and he got to, as far as we were able to find out, he got to about this, round about this vicinity and he was picked up. Uh, must have showed him a, a, a bomb police car or something like that to get him into the car because he was a big lump of a chap uh, and I don't think he would have went easily. They, they took him from here then on up the road that we're continuing along into one of the community centres and they interrogated him there uh, and the inquest had come out, he had wounds in his chest and arm that were consistent with uh, some puncture wounds but you know inflicted by a pen knife. Uh, he'd been beaten obviously. Uh, they then took him from, from the, the community centre in the Bally Sillon where they had him uh, on up to a place, a road called the Horseshoe Bend on past it there's a lot of old quarries and he was shot in the quarry what actually, as far as the police could put it together he had slipped out of his coat and there'd been a, a, a fire old fracas and then he'd obviously be able to run for it they reckon the first bullet that hit him hit him in the back of the leg as he was running away and he then fell obviously sat up turned around put his hands up uh, bullet wounds in one of the hands in an exit hole at the elbow uh, he was hit six or seven times and probably the, the ironic thing about it is that there was only one of them actually fatal the protestant action force uh, claimed responsibility for it what was the the motive behind it well you know i mean you don't have to really look too far for, for a motive kieran was actually the the, the third uh, catholic from the Ardine area that had been murdered in four days. It was Jimmy Hastie, another lad called Lutton, and Kieran was on the Saturday night. They, of course, came out with the usual bullshit that he was a, a member of the IRA and all the rest of it, but, I mean, it was just so much nonsense and smokescreen for them, you know? You had to identify his body eventually. Yeah, eventually we, we the police took us from, from Musgrave Street round to Lag and Bank Morgue, and, which is a fairly horrible place. It's rather like the old municipal baths that you got built at the turn of the century. Uh, it's all tiles and, and uh, terraza flooring. And when we entered the, the, the room where the bodies were, there was sort of five bodies along one wall that were toe-tagged, and they obviously knew who they were. There was two bodies then on the right-hand wall with no toe-tags on, there was sheets over them. Uh, and I looked at the, the, the nearest body to me, I could see Kieran, who had very curly hair, I could see the hair sticking out from under the sheet. and. Um, slept with him from as long as I can remember in the same room as him. I knew what his hair looked like sticking out under a sheet and knew then, even before the policeman had uh, pulled down the sheet to, to, to let me see him. It's left an awful lot of bitterness with you. Ah, well, naturally, yeah. Pain that that, 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 that sort of thing can be in, in, inflicted on, on families in Northern Ireland for, for no other reason than people imagine that they're a threat to them for whatever. Uh, it just every time it happens it, it, it brings it back to you and you realise on both sides of the divide just what the families are, are, are suffering at the time you know Well after Kieran was assassinated I continued to play for the club but it got progressively harder to, to, to field and, and, and to play games as a result of the troubles we lost our, our home pitch which was in a Protestant area and we had no, no access to it because of the troubles so we were travelling away to all your games and, well, I must give ourselves a pat in the back. It was one year we won the award for, for never failing the field. Um, it was tough, you know, by, by the 
late seventies, you're, you're talking there were seven of the lads off that sixty nine team had, had immigrated to, to parts for him. You had about four or five of them living in the south and, and, and one of the boys dead. Uh, in fact it was that bad generally in the district that the people raised a monument to, to all those people killed as a result of the troubles. And it consisted of a, a large Celtic cross which was a fellow called Donny Carvel picked up in his, his crane and brought up and, and set in place for, for the monument committee. Uh, about three weeks after that, Danny was shot dead, travelling across the Shankar Road in his car. Uh, Danny was the brother of Brian Carvel, who was the reserve goalkeeper in that under-16 team of 69. He's 14 years of age, same age as my, my, my own brother, Kieran. Uh, a good kid, another one that you'd seen grow up, and then all of a sudden, Brian was going through the same pain that so many other people in the district had gone through. Danny Carvel was just over 30 when he was gunned down. He was married with a family. His brother Brian Carvel was reserve goalkeeper for the 1969 Ardoin Kickhams. The night the brother was shot, you see, he, that day he went out for a drink to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And it was the first St. Patrick's Day he had off for 10 years, so he was really going to enjoy himself. You know. Well, I came home from work and the brother came up to me and said the sister had to be picked up from her work. So I offered to drive the car down to pick the sister up, but he wouldn't let me. So we had a bit of a fallout. That was at five to six that evening. Well, at five past six, the police arrived at the door and informed me the brother had been shot. What actually happened? Well, as he was driving down to pick the sister up, he drove down Flag Street and as crossing onto the Shankill Road down Canberra Street, a car followed him. And as he was got to the bottom of Canberra Street, another car came up and hemmed him in. Now, he had his young lad with him at the time of his son, and seeing the gunman approaching, he threw his young lad down in the motor and threw him, his own body over the, his own son to, to shield him and protected him. Now the gunman, he fired four shots into the brother, killed the brother, but thankfully the nephew was saved. He saved his own son by sealing him with his own body. What was the reason for the murder, do you know? Well, it was, it was put down as purely sectarian. At the start they tried to say he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But they never proved any different, and you just have to take their word for it. One of the people who actually committed the murder and was convicted for it uh, eventually wrote to you, um, isn't that right? Yeah, he did. After about five years of his conviction, he wrote to me asking could I come to see him in prison because he wanted to apologise, and he had fallen in love with a police widow, and he wanted to marry her. And he was really sorry for what he'd done, and was born-again Christian, and he wanted to apologise personally. Now, but the police warned me not to go near him because as far as they were concerned he was a convicted liar and he was trying to lie his way out of jail. How do you feel about him? Personally I just don't want anything to do with him. No communication at all with him because he already hurt our family once and I would hate to think that he would get out and maybe hurt our family again or hurt somebody else's family the same way as he hurted us. How has the whole thing affected you throughout these past uh, 11 years? Well, after a few years you tend to get used with it because you have other friends that has been killed before the brother and you have other friends that has been killed after the brother and it seems it gets the way, the way of life with you but just as I was trying to get over it I lost the wife through a cancer and knowing her age was only 34 and the age of the brother then I thought was an old, older an old man of 33 now I'm 33 I just realised how young he was and that he, he shot. And it really hurts me no more now than it did 11 years ago.
By the 1980s, there was only three of us left out of that photograph still playing for the club. Myself playing in goals and Cam McAleer up around the forward line and Mickey McCarvey, who, who played, still does play senior hurling for the club. You'd lost all sorts of players. You'd Raymond McClurg uh, moved away to commentary. John McMahon, a senior hurler who was in the photograph, he was the manager of the team. He's living in England. Uh, Martin Malm survived an assassination attempt living in England. Uh, Liam Carr. Uh, father assassinated, family now lives down south. Jared Rosetta, father assassinated, uh, immigrated to Canada. And it was no real way that you were going to build a club. Due to that, we dropped down from senior status, and it's very hard to sort of rebuild to back up the senior status with that, that sort of thing happening. Uh, in, in that photograph, for example, there's two brothers, Liam Miller and, and Emmanuel, who, who the family moved away from the district. But their cousin, uh, Sammy Morrison, he was at that game as, as a young kid, just joined the club and, and running about. Um, Sammy became a senior footballer in the 80s. As I say, you're trying to build a team. The next thing, Sammy uh, was hit in, a, in an attempted sectarian assassination and very badly injured. And Sammy will never play football again. So it, it makes it tough to try and get back up that hap- with that sort of thing happening. Sammy Morrison was aged 30 when the attempted assassination took place. It happened at his home on Deer Park Road. It was a late night in November 87. Well, I'd, I'd been in the Gaelic Club that evening for a, a few pints and I got left around the house. It was about 8 o'clock. I was just in the door a few minutes when I heard a knock at the door and I went out to open it. The next thing I can remember is lying at the bottom of the stairs. It was in quite a a bit of pain and all I could see was blood everywhere the mother came running out from the kitchen and she was in a, an extremely hysterical state uh, so like, she ran out in the street and a lot of neighbours came running in and started to phone for people her natural reaction because she thought it was about the day was to get a priest however I was more concerned about living and I shouted at her to get a doctor and never mind a priest. How many bullets had you been hit with? I'd been shot five times and once in the thumb, my left elbow, my right thigh, my stomach and my neck. Do you know how many men were involved in the shooting? No, I've no recollection at all of how many men were involved or the shooting itself. My mind is completely blank. What do you think the reason was why they targeted you? Uh, I've often thought about this now and it's I don't actually think that I was picked specifically uh, I think it was just a random sectarian shooting I don't think that was because I was a member of the Gaelic club they were just out to shoot a Catholic and mine was the door that was picked And were the people responsible for the shooting ever found? No, they were never caught and it's highly unlikely that they will be what about the remnants, uh, the effects of the injuries on you now for the rest of your life? Well, the main injury is to my left elbow. It was shattered, so it means limited movement in, in my arm, so I'm, well, I'll not be able to play Gaelic football or hurling again. Does it mean the end of your association with the club? No. In fact, before I was shot, I was running the underage teams, and I have since returned to do so, and I will continue to do it. What about your attitude now towards living in Ardoyne um, as a result of this shooting? Uh, has it changed? Well, before I was shot, I was living on the outskirts of the area. 
we've now moved into into the middle of the area, so I obviously feel a lot safer going home from the club or when you're sitting in the house at night, the same worry wouldn't be there as it would have been if I had been continued to live in the house I was living in. Do you think about this an awful lot, what happened to you? I try not to. However, when there, there are any incidents in the north... It always brings it back, and well, it'll always be in the back of my mind, I presume. Do you feel in any way like a target of man? No, I don't feel as if I'm a target because, uh, as I said previously, I think it was a purely random sectarian shooting. So I've returned to work and I just try to get on with my life, you know, as best I can without thinking about what's happened. Today, the Ardoyne Kickhams continue to field an under-16 team. All the players come from the parish of Ardoyne itself, but by general agreement, the team of 1988-89 is a poor reflection of that championship-winning side of 20 years ago. If that team had stayed together, it's possibly hard to analyse just how well they would have done. But if you compare it, the club has won the under-16 football championship twice. They won it in 63. Now the nucleus of that 63 team went on to lift the Division 1B uh, Senior Football League title in, ironically enough, 1969. That 1969 team, of its nucleus had been kept together, it's quite possible that they would have uh, emanated that feat and, and maybe p- uh, captured the Senior League title. Certainly what we wouldn't have done was lose our senior status because you've seen the drop from 69 to the 70s and 80s where, where we moved from senior right down to junior. And in the way, we've sort of clawed back to the intermediate level now, but uh, as I say, you never know what that team might have achieved with some young players coming through, if not for the troubles and all things being equal. But however, that's all sort of water under the bridge now. Last summer in Belfast, Ardoyne Kickhams prepared for a new football season. They had failed to win the Under-16 Championship since 1969, and they had few hopes for the season ahead. But finally, the long-term prospects were looking brighter. The strange thing, looking at the team sheets now in the club for the under-12 and under-14 level, is that the, the names are starting to recur again. Um, granted, we've lost a lot of guys through immigration and, and moving down south and moving away from the district, but the chaps that are still there, their kids are coming along, their sons are coming along and playing for the club. And in a couple of years' time, the under-16 football team is not going to look too dissimilar from the under-16 football team of 1969. You know, around like 20 years later, the, the team sheet's going to read McCallum and Murphy and Coleman and McCurvey. And that's, I suppose, part of the club, why the club was 80 years old last year, is that continuity and, and the continuation of, of playing the game and, and going for it, I suppose. It's a bit like surviving in Northern Ireland. You just you just get on with it. You you take whatever shots is dealt at you and deal with it the best way you can and just continue on. And the under-16 team will be around for as long as the club's going to be around. Ardoyne Kickham's under-16s, 1969. John McMahon, emigrated. Raymond Mooney, assassinated. Pierce Moss, emigrated. Liam Miller, lives in Belfast. Davy Wasson, emigrated but returned to Belfast. Raymond McClurg, emigrated. Pat Murphy, lives in Belfast, his brother assassinated. Roy Kerrigan, emigrated. Jim Murray, lives in Belfast. Leonard Cook, 
emigrated. Denny Wasson emigrated. Michael McCurvey lives in Belfast. Kieran Murphy assassinated. Ronnie Harrison lives in Belfast. Martin Mallon emigrated. Jared Rosato emigrated but returned to Belfast. Paul Coleman lives in Belfast. Brian Carvel lives in Belfast. His brother assassinated. Michael McCallum and Frank McCallum both live in Belfast. Their brother assassinated. Liam Corr emigrated. His father assassinated. Kevin McAleer lives in Belfast. Frank Mulgrave moved from Belfast. And lastly, Emmanuel Miller still in Belfast. <laughs>